Chapter Twenty of Ravensdene Court by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The possible reason. At that last word, spoken with an emphasis which showed that it awoke no very pleasant memories in the speaker, Miss Raven looked questioningly from one to the other of us. Maroon, she said, what is that exactly? Baxter gave her an indulgent and me a knowing look. I dare say Mr. Middlebrook can give you the exact etymological meaning of the word better than I can, Miss Raven, he answered, but I can tell you what the thing means in actual practice. It means to put a man or men ashore, preferably on a desert island, leaving him or them to fend for himself or themselves as best he or they can. It may mean slow starvation. At best it means living on what you can pick up by your own ingenuity, on shellfish and that sort of thing, even on edible seaweed. Marooned? Yes, that was the only experience I ever had of that. It's all very well talking of it now, as we sit here on a comfortable little vessel with a bottle of good wine before us. But at the time, ah! You'd stiff time of it, I suggested. Worse than you'd believe, he answered. That old Yankee skipper was a vindictive chap, with method in him. He'd purposely gone off the beaten track to land us on that island, and he played his game so cleverly that not even the quicks, who were as subtle as snakes, knew anything of his intentions until we were all marched over the side at the point of ugly-looking revolvers. If it hadn't been for that little Chinese whom you've just seen, we would have starved, for the island was little more than a reef of rock, rising to a sort of peak in its centre, worn-out volcano, I imagine, with nothing eatable on it in the way of flesh or fruit. But Chu was a godsend. He was clever at fishing, and he showed us an edible seaweed out of which he made good eating, and he discovered a spring of water. Altogether, he kept us alive. All of which, he suddenly added, with a darkening look, made the conduct of those two quicks not merely inexcusable, but devilish. What did they do? I asked. I'm coming to it, he said, all in due order. We were on that island several weeks, and from the time we were flung unceremoniously upon its miserable shores to the day we left it, we never saw a sail nor a wisp of smoke from a steamer. And it may be that this, and our privations, made us still more birds of a feather than we were. Anyway, you, Middlebrook, know how men, thrown together in that way, will talk, Nay, must talk unless they go mad, talk about themselves and their doings and so on. We all talked. We used to tell tales of our doubtful past as we huddled together under the rocks at nights, and some nice lurid stories there were, I can assure you. The Quicks had seen about as much of the doubtful and seamy side of seafaring life as men could, and all of us could contribute something. Also, the Quicks had money, safely stowed away in banks here and there. They used to curse their fate, left there apparently to die when they thought of it. And it was that, I think, that led me to tell, one night, about my adventure with the naughty bank manager at Blythe, and of the chests of old monastic treasure which I'd planted up here on the Northumbrian coast. "'Ah!' I exclaimed. "'So you told Noah and Salter Quick that?' I told Noah and Salter Quick that, he replied slowly. Yes, 
and I can now explain to you what Salter was after when he appeared in these parts. I read the newspaper accounts of the inquest and so on, and I saw through everything, and could have thrown a lot of light on things, only I wasn't going to. But it was this way. I told the Quicks all about the Blythe affair. The truth was I didn't believe we should ever get away from that cursed island. But I told them in a fashion which evidently afterwards led to considerable puzzlement on their part. I told them that I buried the chests of old silver, wherein were the other valuables taken from the vaults of a bank in a churchyard on this coast, close to the graves of my ancestors. I described the spot and the lie of the ruins pretty accurately. Now, where the quicks, Salter at any rate, got puzzled and mixed, was over my use of the word ancestors. What I meant, but never said, was that I had planted the stuff near the graves of my maternal ancestors, the old de Canathevilles, who were once great folk in these parts, and of whose name my own Christian name, Netherfield, is of course a corruption. But Salter Quick, to be sure, thought the graves would bear the name Netherfield, and when he came along this coast it was that name he was hunting for, do you see? "'Then Salter Quick was after that treasure?' I said. "'Of course he was,' replied Baxter. "'The wonder to me is that he and Noah hadn't been after it before. "'But they were men who had a good many irons in the fire, "'too many, and some of them far too hot, as it turned out, "'and I suppose they left this little affair until an opportune moment. "'Without a doubt, not so long after I'd told them the story, "'Salter Quick scratched inside the lid of his tobacco-box a rough diagram of the place I'd mentioned, with the latitude and longitude approximately indicated. That's the box there's been so much fuss about, I read in the papers, and I'll tell you more about it in due process. But now, about that island and the quicks, and how they and the rest of us got out of it, I told you that the centre of the island rose to a high peak, separating one coast from the other. Well, one day, when we'd been marooned for several weary weeks, and there didn't seem the least chance of rescue. I, my French friend, and the Chinaman crossed the shoulder of that peak and went along the other coast prospecting, more out of sheer desperation than in the hope of finding anything. We spent the next night on the other side of the island, and it was not until late on the following afternoon that we returned to our camp, if you can call that a camp which was nothing but a hole in the rocks and we got back to find Noah and Salter Quick gone, and we knew how they had gone when the Chinaman's sharp eyes made out a sail vanishing over the horizon. Some Chinese fishing boat had made that island in our absence, and these two skunks had gone away in her and left us, their companions, to shift for ourselves. That's the sort the Quicks were. Those were the sort of tricks they'd play on their so-called friends. Do you wonder, either of you, that both Noah and Salter eventually got what they got? We made no answer to that beyond perhaps a shake of our heads. Then Miss Raven spoke. But you got away in the end, she suggested. We got away in the end, sometime later when we were about done for, assented Baxter, and in the same way, a Chinese fishing boat that came within hail, it landed us on the Jiangsu coast, and we had a pretty bad time of it before we made our way to Shanghai. From that port we worked our passage to Hong Kong. I had an idea that we might strike the quicks there, or get news of them, 
but we heard nothing of those two villains at any rate but we did hear that the elizabeth robinson had never reached chemulpo she'd presumably gone down with all hands and we were supposed of course to have gone down with her we did nothing to disabuse anybody of the notion both i and my friend had money in hong kong and we took it up and went off to singapore as for our chinaman chu he said farewell to us and vanished as soon as we got back to hong kong and we never set eyes on him again until very recently when i ran across him in a chinese eating-house in poplar from that meeting i suppose the more recent chapters of your story begin i suggested or do they begin somewhat earlier a little bit earlier he said my friend and i came back to england a little before that with money in our pockets we'd been very lucky in the east and with a friend of ours a chinese gentleman mind you we decided to go in for a little profitable work of another sort and to start out by lifting my concealed belongings up here so we bought this craft in hull then ran her down to the thames then as i say i came across lo chu fen and got his services and those of two other compatriots of his then in london and here we are you see how candid i am do you know why it would be interesting to know mr baxter said miss raven please tell us well he said with a queer deliberation some men in my position would have thought nothing about putting bullets through both of you when we met this afternoon you hit on our secret but i'm not that sort i treat you as what you are a gentlewoman and a gentleman and no harm whatever shall come to you therefore i feel certain that all i've said and am saying to you will be treated as it ought to be by you i dare say you think i'm an awful scoundrel but i told you i was an ishmael and i certainly haven't got the slightest compunction about appropriating the stuff in those chests on deck one of the forest birds stole it from the monks why shouldn't i steal it from his successor it's as much mine as his perhaps more so for one of my ancestors a certain geoffrey de canetheville was at one time lord abbot of the very house that the forest birds stole that stuff from i reckon i've a prior claim middlebrook i should imagine i answered guardedly that it would be very difficult for anybody to substantiate a claim to ecclesiastical property of that particular nature which disappeared in the sixteenth century what is certain however is that you've got it take my advice hand it over to the authorities he looked at me in blank astonishment for a moment then laughed as a man laughs who is suddenly confronted by a good joke ha 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 he let out at the top of his voice good you're a born humorist friend middlebrook he pushed the claret nearer fill your glass again hand it over to the authorities why that would merit a full-page cartoon in the next number of punch good good but he went on suddenly becoming grave again we were talking of those scoundrelly quicks of course we that is my french friend and i have been and are suspected of murdering them i think that is so i answered well that's a very easy point to settle if it should ever come to it he replied and i'll settle it for your edification just now noah and salter quick were done to death one near saltash in cornwall the other near alnwick in northumberland several hundreds of miles apart about the same hour of the same evening 
now my friend and i so far from being anywhere near either saltash or alnwick on that particular evening and night spent them together at the northeastern railway hotel at york i went there that afternoon from london he joined me from berwick we met at the hotel about six o'clock we dined at the hotel we played billiards in the hotel we slept in the hotel we breakfasted in the hotel the hotel folks will remember us well and our particulars are duly registered in their books on the date in question we had no hand whatever in the murders of noah and salter quick and i give you my word of honour being under the firm impression that though i am a pirate i am still a gentleman that neither of us have the slightest notion who had miss raven made an involuntary murmur of approval and i was so much convinced of the man's good faith that i stretched out my hand to him mr baxter said i i'm heartily glad to have that assurance from you and whether i'm a humorist or not i beg you once more to take my advice and give up that loot to the authorities you can make a plausible excuse and throw all the blame on that bank manager fellow and take my word for it little will be said and then you can devote your undoubtedly great and able talents to legitimate ventures that would be dull as ditchwater middlebrook he retorted with a grin you're tempting me but those quicks i'll tell you in what fashion there is a connection between their murder and ourselves and one that would need some explanation bear in mind that i've kept myself posted in those murders through the newspapers and also by collecting a certain amount of local gossip now you've a certain somewhat fussy and garrulous old gentleman at ravensdene court mr cazalette exclaimed miss raven mr cazalette is the name said baxter i have heard much of him through the sources i've just referred to now this mr cazalette going to or coming from a place where he bathed every morning which place happened to be near the spot whereat salter quick was murdered found a blood-stained handkerchief he did said i and a lot of mystery attaches to it that handkerchief belongs to my french friend said baxter i told you that he joined me at york from berwick as a matter of fact for some little time just before the salter quick affair he was down on this coast posing as a tourist but really just ascertaining if things were as i'd left them at the ruins in the wood above this cove and what would be our best method of getting the chests of stuff away for a week or so he lodged at an inn somewhere i think near ravensdene court and he used sometimes to go down to the shore for a swim one morning he cut his foot on the pebbles and staunched the blood with his handkerchief which he carelessly threw away and your mr cazalet evidently found it that's the explanation of that little matter and now for the tobacco-box a much more important point said i just so agreed baxter now my friend and i first heard of the murder while we were at york in the newspapers that we read there was an account of a conversation which took place in i believe mr raven's coach-house or some outbuilding whither the dead man's body had been carried between this old mr cazalet and a police inspector regarding a certain metal tobacco-box found on salter quick's body now i give you my word that that news was the first intimation we had ever had that the quicks were in england until then we hadn't the slightest idea that they were in england 
but we knew what those mysterious scratches on the tobacco-box signified. Salter had made a rude plan of the place I had told him of, and was in Northumberland to search for it. Then later we read your evidence at the opening of the inquest, and heard what you had to tell about his quest of the Netherfield graves, and, just to satisfy ourselves, we determined to get hold of that tobacco-box, for don't you see, as long as it was about, a possible clue, there was a danger of somebody discovering our buried chest of silver and valuables? So my friend came down again in his tourist capacity, put up at the same quarters, strolled about, fished a bit, botanized a bit, attended the adjourned inquest as a casual spectator, and abstracted the tobacco-box under the very noses of the police. It's in that locker now, continued Baxter with a laugh, pointing to a corner of the cabin, and with it are the handkerchief, your old friend Mr. Cazalet's pocket-book. Oh, your friend got that too, did he? I exclaimed. I see. He abstracted that too, easily enough, one morning when the old fellow was bathing, assented Baxter. Naturally, we weren't going to take any chances about our hidden goods being brought to light. We're highly indebted to Mr. Cazalet for making so much fuss about the tobacco-box, and we're glad there was so much local gossip about it, eh? I remained silent a while, reflecting. It's a very fortunate thing for both of you that you could, if necessary, prove your presence at York on the night of the murder, I remarked at last. Your doings about the tobacco-box and the other things might otherwise wear a very suspicious look. As it is, I'm afraid the police would probably say, granted that they knew what you just told us so frankly, that even if you and your French friend didn't murder Salter Quick and his brother, you were probably accessory to both murders. That's how it strikes me, anyway. I think you're right, he said calmly. Probably they would, but the police would be wrong. We were not accessory, either before or since. We haven't the ghost of a notion as to the identity of the Quick's murderers. But since we're discussing that, I'll tell you both of something that seems to have completely escaped the notice of the police, the detectives, and of you yourself, Middlebrook. You remember that in both cases the clothing of the murdered men had been literally ripped to pieces? Very well, said I. It had, in Salter's anyway, to my knowledge. And so they said it had in Noah's, replied Baxter. And the presumption, of course, was that the murderers were searching for something. Of course, I said. What other presumption could there be? Baxter gave us both a keen, knowing look, bent across the table, and tapped my arm as if to arrest my attention. "'How do you know that the murderers didn't find what they were seeking for?' he asked in a low, forceful voice. "'Come now!' I stared at him. So too did Miss Raven. He laughed. "'That certainly doesn't seem to have struck anybody,' he said. "'I'm sure, anyway, it hasn't struck you before. Does it now?' "'I'd never thought of it,' I admitted. "'Exactly. Nor, according to the papers, and to my private information, had anybody,' he answered. "'Yet it would have been the very first thought that would have occurred to me. I should have said to myself, seeing the ripped-up clothing, "'Whoever murdered these men was in search of something that one or the other of the two had concealed on him, and the probability is he's got it. Of course.' 
"'I'm sure nobody, police or detectives, ever did think of that,' said I. "'But perhaps with your knowledge of the Quick's antecedents and queer doings, "'you have some knowledge of what they might be likely to carry about them.' "'He laughed at that, and again leaned nearer us. "'Aye, well,' he replied, "'as I've told you so much, I'll tell you something more.' I do know of something that the two men had on them when they were on that miserable island, and that they, of course, carried away with them when they escaped. Noah and Salter Quick were then in possession of two magnificent rubies worth no end of money. End of chapter 20